First of all, just thank you very much, Dr. Azuz, for opening the past to us, for hosting this class. Appreciate it very much. So the topic tonight is, um, topic tonight is genetics. Genetics is probably one of the most fascinating current, cre- not creation, but developments. The, the greatest advance that have been happening, I was recently speaking to a uh, PhD student who is in cancer research doing genetics and like the, the level of, of like detail and stuff, things that they're working on in terms of like uh, individualized genetic medications that attack specifically the, the cancerous genes stuff. It's, it's really fantastic. Um, probably many of you here, not many of you, some of you, not myself included, remember the birth of Louise Brown? Anyone here? First test tube baby, IVF, 1978. I'm sure some people remember it here, you don't have to point out. But uh, so that, just in terms of that, I'm thinking about that, that was itself under 40 years ago. That was like 37 years ago. 1978 <laughs> to 2015 is 37 years ago. 36 and a half. And, and, uh, and um, just the advances we've seen even just in that, in terms of IVF, in terms of all these things in terms of genetics have been tremendous. And with these unbelievable advances, obviously come sets of ethical questions and ethical dilemmas to go across with this. So just to start off, everyone here knows how to say the word pig in Hebrew? Anyone? Chazer, right? So why do we call a pig a chazer? Why do we call it chazir? So there's a lot of different opinions. One of the opinions in the Medrash says that it's the same root as the word lachzor, to return. What's it returning to? And there's one opinion that says that in, the, in future days, the pig will return to be kosher. <coughs> Everyone knows the pig is like the symbol of not kosher. One day the pig will resume to be kosher. This is a stated opinion in the Medrash. So the question is, what does that mean? So I saw one person offer an interpretation. It says, it's not so hard. Think about it. Through genetic therapy, we can, what, what does a pig do right now? Right now a pig has split hooves. It lacks, doesn't chew its cud. If we can somehow insert a different type of stomach and genetically allow it to fuse with a, the rest of the pig body. So perhaps now we would create a pig that would chew its cotton half split hooves. Now, that, would that be kosher? Would that not be kosher? Well, let's say you were able to put scales genetically on a catfish. Would that be kosher? Would that not be kosher? Let's say you put, make tomatoes grow on a tree. What blessing do you make on it? From the ground or from a tree? Right? There's a lot of interesting questions that I don't think that, that, that most authorities, this isn't really our class, we're going to focus more on the medical aspect of genetics, but most authorities do say that if you would do that to a pig, the pig would still not be kosher. However, that is definitely one opinion that I saw, that um, if you genetically changed it, so then what, what's its status now, right? If you have a, a horse give birth to a cow, so what's, what's that considered? Is that a horse or a cow? It has all the genes of a cow. So how does that, how does that, how does that play a role exactly? How, okay, I don't know how that works exactly. How do you, you clone it without having a cow? Right, without having a cow. You, you just clone, clone the meat cells. The meat cells. Interesting. English yeah, so they, they, right, there's a lot of interesting like questions with... Muscle cells and made it into a hamburger. Interesting. And Rabbi Craig commented, wow, a part of burger. A part of burger. So, see, I mean, it's a bigger problem. So you clone a person, so what is he? Since you have parents, is there an obligation for honoring your parents? Does he have siblings? Is he not allowed to marry someone? There's a lot of questions that they talk about that by cloning also, by... Well, they'll be the same gender, so that won't be an issue. But even his sister... <laughs> but even that person's sister, is that considered his sister or not, right? 
He didn't have, they don't have the same mother and father, kind of. Okay, we're not going to get too into that right now. We'll maybe as the class goes on. So the, 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 main, the main question is, is, is all, once we get involved in the ability to do all these things, so what exactly is the, the, the end point? There's a, so it's a comical, there's a cartoon that I saw. Not really in a good, I don't have a screen here, but you can, uh, <laughs> next time, next time I have any for it, it's, it's a comic, it's okay, no, I see it. It has a little angel saying, God, the human genome code has been unraveled. And God says back, darn hackers, now I have to change the password. Right? <laughs> Meaning, kind of God set up the world in a certain way. And now we have really the ability nowadays, and this is really up and coming more, to really switch things around and change parts of one thing and put them in parts of another thing. And the really question is, the main ethical question I would think really in the whole field of genetics is, when does that cartoon come into play? What's the, when do we start saying, you know, this is too far, this is already called playing God? And when do we say, you know, we're, we're creating vaccines, we're developing health, and we're continuing to develop the world? So I just want to start with two, two basic sources. The first source is, is a verse in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And this is right after God creates man. The first thing he says, God says to man, Puruvu, be fruitful and multiply. Umil uas aretz, v'kiv shuha and fill up the world and conquer it. So what does this mean, and conquer it? There's no one to conquer. He's the only man in the world. Right? Who's, who's he conquering? He's it. So Nachmanides writes, late, late th- early 13th century, late 12th century, he writes, that what does it mean, and conquer it? Conquer it means conquer the world and develop it for the, with the ability to enhance your life. Meaning, God was telling man, don't just leave the world as it is. Go mine out metals from the ground. Go create couches and chairs. Go make plates. Go make utensils. Go develop the world to, to have a more productive, advanced world. And this is actually a commandment from God. The first one after, be fruitful and multiply. But in that same sentence, God told them, develop the world for the betterment of man. So it would seem from here, and many, most follow this opinion of, of Nachmanides. It's interesting, Rabbi Salavechik from YU writes in a book called Halachic Man. He says, why do we even need to know the whole first chapter of Genesis that talks about creation. What is it? Okay, God said that there be light, and there was light. God said that there be trees, and there were trees. What are, what are we gaining from it? So he, Rabbi Salavichik says, that we learn a, a law from it. So the law we learn from that is, is that just like God creates, and He created the world, He has expectations of us similar to Him to also create. Now, we can't create nothing from something, but we can create the world, and we can develop the world also. And He, he builds up this point from Nachmanides, and he says that's really the whole purpose of the first chapter of, of the Bible, to teach us this concept that we should be godlike in terms of developing and creating the world. So all these advances seem to be, in that sense, a tremendous thing. It's a, it's a, we're advancing the world, creating vaccines, basically eradicated polio and other types of terrible diseases we've had tremendous success with, with developing the world. Now let's contrast this to a story that Gemara brings. We mentioned this story quickly at the end of the last class, so I want to expand upon it quickly. Now Gemara in Brachos brings a story between the king Chizkiah and the prophet Isaiah. There was a certain strife between them that the king felt like Isaiah should come to him and the prophet felt that the king should come to him. And the Gemara says that God is so great that he brings peace between, between people. What did God do? He made Chizkiah get sick and he made Isaiah have to now do the mitzvah, the commandment of visiting the sick. So Isaiah comes and he visits Chizkiah and he comes and he says, Chizkiah, I message you, God, you're going to die and you're not going to live. So the Gemara says, you're going to die, you're not going to live. Why do you have to repeat himself? So you're going to die in this world, and you're not going to live in the world to come. 
So, what, what did I do that was so bad? I have no share in the world to come. I'm like totally writing me off. Now. Like, Chizkiah was a tremendous king in terms of the kings of Israel. He was righteous. He was great. He led the nation in an appropriate, proper way. So he said, what did I do that? I deserve to have no, no share in the, in the world to come anymore. So Chizkiah says, it's, you know, I don't know why? It's because you did not engage in procreation. So Chizkiah said, well, I'll tell you why I didn't do it. I knew through divine inspiration that my children were going to be terribly wicked and they were going to lead the Jewish nation astray and they were going to create a nation of idolaters. So why would I, I don't want to have children. I, I'm not going to have children like that. So here, the, the following, Isaiah responded to him a very uh, frequently quoted statement in Jewish medical ethics. He said as follows, he said, With the secrets of God, what are you playing with? You have an obligation on yourself, you do what you're supposed to do, and let God do what God's supposed to do. Meaning, you knew somehow, however exactly you knew, you had this inspiration, you understood that God was going to make your children be wicked. Okay, you knew that. But what? You have an obligation, a Torah obligation, to procreate and to have children. So why are you able to choose and decide that just because you think that it's not the right thing to have this child, you can now shirk off your obligation to the Torah, and you can just say, okay, I don't want to have children. <coughs> so Chizkiah says back to him, I have a great idea. You have a daughter, you're a righteous man, I'm a king, I'm a righteous man, let's make a shadach, right? I'll marry your daughter, and in your marriage and my marriage together, hopefully God will heal me, and sure enough, that's what happened. God healed him, gave him another 15, 20 years of life, and he gave birth to, sure enough, one of the most wicked kings Israel ever had. His name was Menashe, who led the, the nation totally astray, turned the entire nation into idolaters, exactly as had planned, right? as, as he knew. Now the question is, it seems to be here, Gemara, that says, even though he knew that would happen, one should not make decisions regarding their progeny based on, perhaps, what they'll, they'll bring in the future. So perhaps we can induce from here that let's say I... Let's just take an example. Two parents, both carriers for Tay-Sachs. Should they make a decision based on what they think the future will bring in terms of their kid or in terms of either their kid affecting others? Can we take that out of the Gemara and say that the same thing would apply over here? Just like you can't make the decision based on what your child is going to do, you can't make that decision based on what your child is going to be. And therefore, if you have an obligation to procreate, and you know there's a strong chance, and let's talk 30 years ago, before there were things nowadays that we maybe can even do things about this, we'll get to there later, concepts like PGD and other things, but for, right, for in, let's say 30 years ago, when you know you had a couple kids already, God forbid, that had Tay-Sachs, can you say now, I don't want to fulfill my obligation, I'm going to either sterilize my wife or just use contraception, and we're not going to get pregnant anymore. So this is a huge debate. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, getting back to what um, Fred was just saying before, evidently in this community, he was just pointing out, that Rabbi Walk is a student from the school of Rabbi Feinstein, and um, Rabbi Fried is a student of Rabbi Orbach, and Rabbi Feinstein and Rabbi Orbach actually debate about this Gemara and this point, and that is that Rabbi Feinstein rules that, that one is, one, even, they're talking about before genetic testing, really. this is really before a lot of changes have occurred till today, but in those times when they're just be, working with the fact that they've already had multiple children with genetic disorders. By finding that since probability-wise, now just scientifically, probability-wise, that both parents are carriers for Tay-Sachs, I'd say, right? It's a recessive gene. So there's a 25% chance, right, because each parent has two genes. One is good, one is bad. There's a 25% chance the child will have Tay-Sachs. A 50% chance the child will be a carrier from one or the other. And a 25% chance the child will have nothing. 
So Rabbi Einstein says, therefore, it's a very likely probability that your child will be totally healthy. Therefore, it doesn't excuse you from your obligation of fulfilling the commandment of having children. But they did have children. The children just died. So now, what's... So they did procreate. Okay, so that gets into a more technical <laughs> detail of when do you fulfill your obligation of procreation. Okay. Because right, it could be that even though they had them and they died, or it could be if they had only the same gender, there's certain different legal aspects of when you consider, when you consider having fulfilled the like obligation. Age, so you only, you only... Is it consider that you procreated if your children are, get to be... Like, so the, this, 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 is, this is a, a big this is a big dispute when you can fulfill it. Some, some opinions even hold you only fulfill your obligation of procreation when you have a boy and a girl and you have a boy and a girl grandchild. There's a lot of different opinions across the spectrum in terms of when you consider having fulfilled it. Let's say you had one child that had Tay-Sachs. That everyone agrees if you had one child you, for sure, you have to have at least two children to fulfill your obligation. So let's say you had one so now let's just talk in that, in that situation. Can you now say I don't want to have more children? The question is: The question is, are you? This is a more technical aspect because the Gemara, sa- the Gemara says, the Gemara says that when you die, there's a few questions God asks you when you die. One of the questions God asks you is a sakta period review. Did you engage in procreation? Now He doesn't ask you, did you have a boy and a girl? He doesn't ask you, did you have ten children? If you, everyone, if all rabbis agree to, if you tried having children and you were not capable for whatever reason of having children, there, you you did the you're exempt. You're, you're, you did everything. You, it's not just an example. You, you accomplish the mitzvah. Okay, this is only for men, right? It's not the same. Men and women have different obligations to that, right? Right, but even within men, it's not just that you're exempt. You're, you fulfilled your obligation. Your obligation is to engage in procreation. Before you get too far... The result of that is what now exempts you from future obligation to engage in procreation. But your obligation is to engage. <clears throat> your obligation is not to have children. That's why, for example, let's say, for example, IVF, Right? Um, in terms of IVF, no one that obligates the couple that can't have children to do IVF. You're allowed to do IVF, and if you want to do IVF to have children, that's permissible, according to just about everyone. But there, nobody holds you obligated to do IVF. Why? Because you're not obligated to have a child. You're obligated to engage in procreation. So therefore, there's no obligation to do IVF. Okay, fine. This, this, this would be more, more towards men, correct? She has a different mitzvah, but not an obligation of procreation. With different, uh, different guidelines. Very different thing. Correct, correct, one hundred percent. So, so in this I point, have a question. And, yeah, and that is, uh, and then a, one quick comment. What's the Ezekiel Gemara reference? Uh, Brachos ten b. Brachos ten b. Yeah, I can. It's okay. And and then um, and then and then the other thing is that you, you might be interested in knowing. I probably. Not everybody here knows, but in, in the mid-1970s, every Jewish male and female who was interested uh, was tested for Tay-Sachs. Oh, so we're going to get to that. So we, we that were all that. tested to see who was a Tay-Sachs carrier. And the Federation strongly urged us to get that testing before we got married. Right, so and, uh, there's so a thing called Doria Sharm nowadays. This was, this, was, I don't know if... this was just the whole Dallas Jewish community it had nothing to do with their religious orientation. Right. It, it all just came out. I don't know who created it, but it was an amazing thing, and, and uh, we all found out. And it was uh, uh, a relief, you know, when you found out that uh, you weren't a car- uh, that you weren't a carrier and your spouse wasn't a carrier. Um, so that, and then of course, if neither of you were carriers, you could give that information to your children. So that was a big deal in Dallas in the mid seventies, way before 
Right, right before that, yeah, that's for sure. We're going we're to get to Tesak shortly, but um, the, thank you very much. Um, so, the, so this is like one example of, this, of, a, of a dispute between Rabbi Orbach and Rabbi Feinstein. Rabbi Orbach says, he doesn't say definitively that they're not obligated to, have, to procreate, but he says it requires more, more time to look into the matter. He, was, he, was, he wasn't quick to, he wouldn't decide either way. While Rabbi Feinstein clearly says that that, that um, would be a problem. So the question, <clears throat> so we see there's kind of this dispute in one aspect. The Torah says in Genesis, you know, develop the world as much as you can. We also have this aspect of don't, don't mess with God's, you know, God's world in a certain sense. Don't make your calculations for God's desires. So the question is, where exactly do we draw this line, right? Gene therapy or cloning and all these types of things. What's the, what's the, where do we, where do we really draw the line? So, this is a very modern, current question that I'm not sure there's really a 100% clear consensus from the current day rabbis. There's one thing that everyone I've seen all agrees on, and that is that for the purpose of healing and health, everything is basically permissible. Meaning, if you're going to do a certain type of ge- genetic therapy or something to increase life and make life more, either more healthy or just longer, more productive then that, that, everyone agrees, is on the side of developing the world and <coughs> continuing it, as opposed to don't mess with God's world. But let's say you could use genes to create taller, stronger basketball players, or more attractive models, or any other types of... I don't want to take business away from you. But, or any other type of thing, right? Then perhaps that would be... That's already much iffier in terms of the... Are you playing, are you playing with God's world? Why do you need to do this already? There's no clear consensus among the rabbis in terms of in terms of genetics that I was able to see. There's everyone agrees that the, the main point of permissibility is for health. Now we'll get to case in a second of where there's kind of an overlap. Like for example, let's say there's a let's say if you have a, let's say if you have a boy child, a male child that be affected by hemophilia. Let's say the mother hemophilia is an X-linked disorder, right? So if the mother, if the a boy is always going to be an X and a Y, which means he's getting his X from the mother. So if the mother's a carrier, then the son could potentially have Hemophilia. So there is, let's say, for example, there's certain things you could do. We'll get there in a second. I'll just introduce it now. Is everyone here familiar with the concept called PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis? So basically, there's a concept that what it does is it works with IVF. And you basically, you do IVF. When it's around an eight-cell organism, you pull out one cell, and you can genetically test any known gene you can test for in this cell. So what you would normally do is, let's say, that you have two parents that are both carriers for Tay-Sachs. So you can pull out one cell from this, but you, you, so you harvest four eggs from the mother, and you fertilize the four eggs. You can take out one cell when it's between the six and ten cell organism. You test that cell to see if it's diseased, if, it has, if, it, if, it, if it's carrying the genes for Tay-Sachs or not. Any, any uh, embryos that are, that are uh, carrying the disease, you, can, you, you don't implant. And any healthy embryos, you can implant. Right? So we'll get there in a second. This, is, yeah, actually, this will be permissible because, again, because this is an example of using genetics for... Health and life. But, uh, so that's the question, right? So that, that's what comes up with this, which was a big question, like even in secular ethics, nothing to do with the Torah, was any gene that we know you can really use for this product for. So at this point in time, it's tremendously expensive, and most people probably won't just use it for, you know, to have a kid with blue eyes or whatever reason they want, but it's, it's open for that. So in terms of gender selection, so if you're testing for a disease that's an X linked disorder, so let's say you want to specifically choose to have a female child because the female child won't have that, or you want to separate the sperm cells and only use the sperm cells that, that would produce, that are, um, that are X's and not Y's. So in that case, it's much more lenient, it's much more 
there's not like a clear consensus because this is all very very current, but it's, it seems to be that there's a that that would be much that 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 would be permissible because that again is for the purpose of health and for the purpose of life. Because if you have a male child, be sick. If you have a female child, will be healthy. So you are allowed to choose the gender for the female child, since that will allow you to create a healthy baby. But the 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 drive for this is because that's going to produce health and that's going to create a healthy baby. Just to, just to be clear, um, that's a much better way than uh, trying to test for a genetic mutation. And the problem is that there are genetic mutations that you don't know are pathological. So you only know the ones that we already know are pathological. So yeah. if you test the, for a series of, pa- of, of, of mutations, uh, you may not have the mutation that's actually going to be pathological for a particular kid. But if you do an X-linked, if you test for a child, and if it's an X-linked disease, then then you know for sure you're not going to, you know, you're not, you're going to have two X chromosomes. So if it's, uh, if it's X-linked recessive, you would look for the, you would look for the, 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 the sex and not for the Right. So, so when you're looking for that, so that, would, that would be permissible again if, if it's for the, the purpose of, of health. So when, when did genetics start to really affect the Jewish, the Jewish family? So the first, uh, the really biggest, the biggest starting point was, what we said before, was Tay-Sachs. Now, Tay-Sachs was, there's two doctors, right? Dr. Warren Tay, Dr. Bernard Sachs. Dr. Warren Tay was an ophthalmologist, and he noticed a, uh, what he called the cherry red spot in the back of the retina. And he noticed that children that had that often um, they, they suffered from what we now know as Tay-Sachs. And Dr. Bernard Sachs, he was a, he was a, a neurologist, and he basically discovered that... Um, he, he, he was the first one to, to notice the mutations of the cells. He also was the first one to connect it to the Jewish community. And they kind of discovered together Tay-Sachs, which years later, um, years later, was the... Was they were able to locate the gene? And it's interesting to note that the first, the first gene that was ever identifiable and testable was actually the gene of Tay-Sachs, which was done particularly to as a service in a certain sense for the Jewish community. Because Tay-Sachs was specifically more at that time than now even, particularly a Jewish Ashkenazi genetic disorder. And if you think about it, the Jewish um, genetics, really Jewish, uh, the Jewish nation, whatever culture really played a large impact in terms of this specifically, and we'll see in breast cancer gene also, um, a major changes in terms of the history of modern genetics. And there's um, a very interesting thing. Like you were saying before, there's a, in 1978, there was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Eckstein, E-C-K, Eckstein, and he unfortunately suffered from four children dying of Tay-Sachs. And this was around the same time that they discovered the gene, and he started an organization called Doria Sharm. Doria Sharm is an organization that, that's a, uh, it tests for Jewish genetic disorders. I know that I, when I was in high school, they had like everyone did it. And the way they, the way they do it is that everyone basically gets a number. It's, it, they don't disclose any information. So everyone basically gets a number. And when you're going out with someone or before you go out or whenever you want, you call them up and you tell them the two numbers, your number and her number. And they'll either tell you it's fine or they, they'll uh, suggest that you break up. You won't know what the disease was that was a problem. You won't know anything. They had a fear of disclosing information, create certain stigmas and stuff. They didn't want to get involved. Say compatible or incompatible. Right. That's basically all they do. And even if you're incompatible, you don't know who, who has what and what the problem is at all. Yeah. And they test for a lot of these. And it happens because of, because of him, the numbers of just Tay-Sachs births in America have basically, they're basically non-existent nowadays. And um, it's an interesting article I saw. I actually printed it out here. You can, 
It's a theory. In, in 2005, there's a theory that says that any genetic mutation, why, how, why, why would it survive? Why does it last past natural selection? A genetic mutation that's not productive and not positive should naturally die out. So there's a theory that says, by definition, if you have a genetic mutation that lasts, there has to be some, something that, that, that explains why it still exists. So for example, the example he brought, I just saw an article in the, in the Economist, Economist from 2005. I have it here, you could read it if you want, it's an interesting article. It's based on another article that I didn't have a chance to go through yet, the University of Utah, which is like 50 pages, something like that. But he brings an example from like sickle cell anemia is found specifically by Africans, by African Americans, that they have this genetic disorder. And he says that anyone who has the, the, the gene for sickle cell anemia has an immunity to malaria. And the part in Africa where sickle cell anemia really became big was a part of Africa that was always threatened by malaria outbreaks. And that allowed the, the gene for sickle cell anemia to basically survive past natural selection to allow it to sustain itself to the point that it is now. So he says, so what is it that the Jewish genetic disorders did that allowed them to survive past natural selection? That's his question. And he has a theory here. Take it or leave it. I'm not, this is not coming from me or necessarily the Torah. This is just an interesting article that, that said that there's another interesting fact out there, and he was the one who was trying to connect them, that of all ethnicities, Ashkenazi Jews have on average a 10 to 15 point higher IQ score than anyone else. And they were always focused on education. And he tries proving that the genes for certain genetic disorders, the, the neurological effects that they have, also affect brain power. And it, and it has an increased intelligence for carriers of that gene. You can you you read it if you want to have the article here. You could, you could read it or not. Take it or leave it. It's an interesting... <laughs> Make sure your kids are Ashkenazis at least, you know. It's okay, you're safer that way. So anyway, it's an interesting thought. Definitely there's, some, there's some, some idea behind that. The other idea would be that there was always a very closed community and there yeah, wasn't unlimited options of marriage and a more, more basic, more more basic approach. There, there he, he, he discusses that and he has a reason why he doesn't believe that that's true. You can look at it. You're happy. Welcome there to you. There are a lot of things like uh, intelligence and height uh, uh, that are very strongly genetically linked, uh, but there aren't specific genes that have a high input into that linkage. Right. So that each so that there might be a thousand genes equally contributing. So you know, if you have two twins, they're almost always their eighty percent of height is genetic. Two twins are almost always the same height. Oh. And huh? Only identical. Well two identical twins are almost always the same height within a very small amount. But if you then do the genetic analysis, you find that no gene that there are about a thousand genes that contribute to that, and no gene contributes more than a tenth of a percent or so. So that and and it's, yeah. so no, it's I, very, I, it I, actually I, makes it very difficult to genetically program somebody to be, to be small, smart or, you know, uh, or, or to be smart or right. any of those things that are traits because although they're genetic, the contributions of each gene are so tiny. Interesting. Okay, you don't have to take it or leave it. It's an interesting, interesting thought that I never. Uh, had heard of before. So let's take a name of a couple. I have a name of a couple for me. Guy and girl's name? Jacob and Sarah. Jack and Jill. Jacob and Sarah. Don't we Abram and Sarah. Jacob and Rachel. It's all good. Either way. But uh, so here we go. We'll take uh, Abram and Sarah. They were tested. They were already in love. They told them not to get married. They couldn't handle the Three or four months later, Sarah's expecting. 
and they're they're a wreck. <laughs> and she's a wreck. She's scared. She knows they're both carriers. They test in advance, but they, they didn't have the they didn't want to break up their, their engagement, whatever it was. And now she's scared. So should we test amniocentesis, CVS, different forms of, of testing in utero? Should we allow these babies to be tested to know whether or not they have Tay-Sachs or not? So here again, we come to an, inter- an interesting dispute, and this is really based on a secondary level dispute, and that is, is there any permissibility to abort the baby? Meaning like this. Let's just say two names, and we'll go with that. Rabbi Feinstein is of the opinion that there is absolutely no permissibility, even if your baby is going to suffer from a genetic disorder, to abort the baby. Since that's true... And, that's what my Feinstein says. I'm telling you one opinion. Correct, correct, correct. We're, this is purely from the baby's aspect, but there's no harm. With the, right, correct, sorry. That's true. If there's ever harm to the mother, the mother's life takes priority to the, ba- to the fetus's life. When there's no harm to the mother at all, just in terms of the baby's suffering and maybe the parent's diff- psychological difficulty of raising it, whatever the, in- the aspects are going to be, my Feinstein says there's absolutely no permissibility to abort that baby. And since there's no medical technology that can help the baby, you're not going to actually accomplish anything by knowing it has Tay-Sachs. It's only going to lead you towards that, <laughs> that forbidden act of aborting the baby. Therefore, Rabbi Feinstein says you absolutely should not, cannot check in utero for, this, uh, for the disease. Rabbi, it's on the opposite extreme. There's Rabbi Waldenberg, Tzitzel and of Jerusalem. He died also probably like 15 years ago. He held that a baby with Tay-Sachs, you are actually allowed to abort up until the seventh month. And since he held that, he therefore also held, that therefore you are allowed to check in utero for the status of the baby because of that. No, Rabbi Feinstein says, you should, Rabbi Feinstein doesn't allow that. Rabbi Feinstein says, you should not, he does not allow to check in utero because he believes there's nothing to gain from it medically, there's nothing to gain from it in any aspect other than being encouraged to abort. Cephalic births are there that one can figure out what the risk is relative to there the are. 
There are a lot. There are. I mean, most women, you know, they don't. Most women who give birth do not stop. They'll talk, and it's not that uncommon, and it's definitely yeah. not that uncommon. I mean, right. but the, but the point that I wanted to make is what was interesting about it, and I think it goes along with your saying, was that is that the motivation behind whatever you do, gender selection, the motivation behind that's what's looked at in Judaism. It's the motivation. It was the case of the poet in Israel found only one cat girls because they had a Y gene that was a problem, you know, that they had to not have boys because whatever. So the motivation is such that it makes sense. I mean, it is permissible. If the motivation is just because, because, then that's the problem. No, I agree. That's exactly what I was saying before. It's handling with like PGD nowadays in terms of gender selection. In this case of like Y, y linked or X linked problems, so that's the there's it's basically permissible for the purpose of health. If your intention is because you want to create a healthy baby or you want to have like with girls, the purpose of that girl was that they should have healthy babies. The boys were going to suffer from it. So exactly, hundred percent. Is so, that what that case was, or is that the case where they didn't want the boys to be embarrassed because of, they because they couldn't be Kohens because they were because of yeah. the of the of the situation it wasn't a medical reason it was a social reason the mother wasn't the mother wasn't Jewish so the so that the so the kids could not be Kohens and therefore there would be an embarrassment uh, in the family and by only having girls you prevented that embarrassment interesting it's a different story. Interesting. Interesting. So, but Rabbi Feinstein actually, in this case, forbids testing for it even. Because he says, since there's nothing to be gained medically by testing for it, you know, then, there's, then cool. therefore, there's no... I don't know. Shelly could comment on this because he's more into it. But, but to me, it's preposterous to tell two TASATs, carriers, that you shouldn't test your child. Listen, what, what are you gaining by testing? You're saying it's peace of mind or not? I, I just find it hard not to tell. So that was... Rabbi Feinstein, and Rabbi Feinstein and a lot of other responses deals very strongly with the psychological... Not to do amniocentesis or not to test the child when they're born? No, 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 amniocentesis. To test in utero if the child is going to be diseased with, uh, with it or not. Oh. Once they're born, you're allowed to test? Is it, well, that, number one, there's a What's huge psychological difference. Yeah. What? It's a huge economic difference how you approach the, uh, how you approach the way that the baby is growing. If you know that this child is not going to live past his third year, um, you'll approach... Uh, No, so if, if it's going to produce a major psychological trauma, Rabbi Feinstein, in many other cases... No, which... But is, is knowing that it's going to be Tay-Sachs more psychologically disturbing or less psychologically disturbing than not knowing if it is or isn't? Meaning you're not necessarily going to find out that, that it doesn't have Tay-Sachs. And if you find out that it does, you can't abort still, according to Rabbi Feinstein. Oh, one second. You're, you're talking about after the child's already born? So there's, there's, two, there's two steps. There's two steps. Because once a child's born, that could be different now. Because Rabbi Feinstein's main fear is that it's going to lead to abortion. That's his main fear in testing in utero. His fear is that since there's going to be a push that, like the doctors, like you're saying, from the economic standpoint, other point, the doctors, look, there's no point in really having this child. Not at all, but... But, but, the, but the approach, but the, the family economic... So that's what I'm saying. So, that's, so, so that, that, that's how he felt, that at least once a child's born, I agree with you, it could be different than if the child's born already. But once the child, until the child's born, still in utero, he had a fear, which, I mean, you could ask, ask the doctors how real this fear is or not, that there would be a pushing of the parents to abort the child rather than to have it if it's going to have, suffer from a genetic disease. And you can tell me whether or not you think that's a valid fear from the medical 
fueled or not, that's how he felt. No, I mean, is there a fear? If you, if you know you have a Tay-Sachs child, that, oh, that the doctors are going to interact with you differently. That you're not going to be given the same medical attention for you and your child, or you're going to be pushed towards abortion. Well, in the case of I was talking That's what I'm saying. So that's where my science is coming from. In the mainstream accepted Jewish halacha law, that's, that, that's correct. Then there is opinions which people will rely on in certain situations, like Rabbi Waldenberg. Rabbi Waldenberg is really the, 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 the biggest lenient opinion in terms of abortion. He, we can go through that maybe sometime right. in and of itself. It's a very interesting there topic of where, where he's coming from. But the question is, what Rabbi Feinstein's added level here is that since abortion will be forbidden, he doesn't even want you to genetically test in utero because of the fear of leading to that. That's his, his next step. Okay, so now let's say... There's a logical outcome of that particular, uh, of, that, uh, of that basis, that, that abortion is forbidden in all cases. Rabbi Feinstein is strong as opinion. I'm presenting here two but opinions. It's not, we're not dealing with this particular case. You have to take a bigger picture of it here yet. Like, let's, go, let's go on to the next step for one second because it'll, it'll somewhat hit your point and then we'll, we'll try to wrap it up. Let, let's say they had a kid. The kid was born. They were healthy. Thank God. Now they want to have a second kid, right? So they don't want to go through that again, the trauma of... The nine months not knowing, they asked by fine things so they couldn't know. And they don't want to do that again. So what do they want to do? They want to do, like we said before, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. You basically have baby through IVF. You test the baby, the, the baby, whatever, the, the cells, the embryo in advance. And you can now choose to only implant the healthy embryos and discard the other ones. So here, um, basically, again, since this is for the purpose of, of health and life, just about everyone agrees that you could do this. It is permissible. And most also allow you, which is this interesting one, so I'm, I'm curious what, what your point was before, to, to, to discard the diseased embryos, which is already, the, the definition of life is basically once it's implanted in the mother in a situation where it can produce and come into full life. So if it's living in a Petri dish, that, that, that's even within that level, meaning within the level of once you're considered... I mean, even within 40 days, it's not as simple that you can just abort the baby within the 40 days. That's already disputable also. But when the baby is not in the mother yet, when the baby is outside the mother, it's in a Petri dish, then just about everyone agrees that's not considered alive yet. You can for sure discard a diseased Petri dish. What about a healthy Petri dish? The same thing. It's not considered considered alive right now. Okay. Now, are you allowed to create that for no purpose? Are you allowed to... There's other issues, which is really a class in and of itself in terms of... Right, so that, that's really uh, a topic in and of itself in terms of how exactly the, to do IVF is, is a lot of... That, that's a whole, a whole class in and of itself. The basic answer to that is, is that the, there's, the, there's, no, the, there's, no pro, there's no problem of wasting seed. It's not called wasting seed as long as you're using it to produce children. Even if you're doing that through, through a, a Petri dish, through a doctor, in the end of the day, like kind of what David was saying before, is your intention of doing that is not an act of wasting. Your intention of doing that is an action of building. But that's really... It's a, it's a whole... Topic in and of itself.
Okay, it's past 9 o'clock, so anyone who wants to leave, we can call it a night. There's more to say on genetics. You can talk about it forever. So they, they have a question, like you're saying, like the mitochondrial DNA from the mother. So since mitochondrial DNA gets passed on from mother to mother, right? That's how mitochondrial DNA works. So if we could find a certain... If we can compare and know what the Jewish genes look like, so theoretically, why can't we just, you know, Judaism is passed on from mother to child. So if you could look at a random... Let's say you're, married, you're, you're dating a non-Jew... Not you, or somebody's dating a non-Jew. And now this girl thinks maybe she has some Jewish history to her. So it's very easy to take a swab from your cheek, send it off to, you know, some internet site. It's not such a big deal. And they'll tell you if your mitochondrial DNA matches up to Jewish genetics or not. So can we prove Jewishness based on... We've done this study with Y chromosomes and Cohen's. Yeah. They're better off. Right, so Cohen's is the same question again, right? That was Dr. Skorecki started this. He had... Where are you going to find so many Kohanes check at the same time? He went to the hotel when they do the on Birka Kohanim, set up a little booth there. There's like every Kohen in the world, there's like 10,000 Kohanes there. Right? Every, every walking by, everyone's just giving him swabs of their, their Kohen genes. He collected them all and he discovered the, the Kohen gene. But the Kohen gene really means nothing because if a Kohen would marry a non Jew, their kid will have the Kohen gene. Right? And you don't continue. So you don't say, we had two kids and they, they were hemophiliacs. They, what do you don't not, worry about it. Let's what do you not continue? Huh? According to Gemara in Yuvama 64b, the Gemara there says that if you circumcised two hemophiliacs, you don't circumcise the third. Right. Right. It doesn't say you shouldn't give birth to them. Because the hemophilia is a problem. you don't circumcise them. You don't circumcise them. So okay. Right, but I'm saying non-circumcising, that, that's, a question, that's a question there of saving life. Meaning when someone's alive, you're allowed to break the Torah to save life. Right, except for the three cardinal sins, everything else in Torah you break in order to save life. Right, that's the general Torah approach. So you could for sure not have a circumcision if that'll save life. But you wouldn't know until after you did. That I mean, you have, well, that, and, and you those, have history. You're learning from history. So right. in the Ezekiel case, you don't have any. Hit. I guess if he had one or two kids that were really rotten. His kids also then, were. I don't know if it's a genetic disorder. And you, right. can, you can you can de- you can debate whether you evil, can even prove evil anything from this story. Regarding genetics or not. Well, it's very interesting because it's a eugenics case. Right. There's it's a lot a of cases. Right. And I right. don't know of too many. There's a few eugenics other stories of, of, of similar types of things. But right, that, that is totally... It's a, it's, a, it's a mainline eugenics case. And I don't know of one that's old, that old. I'm with you. One last cool question. Then we'll call it a night. I just saw this. I, I, well, you can keep... We can stay as long as you want. I, just, I don't like keeping people captive. It's the biggest fear in ever giving a class is holding captives. <laughs> okay. But um, who are the most famous twins in the Bible? Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Esau. So now the Bible describes the birth of Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob and Esau. What happened? Esau comes out, and it says Jacob was holding onto the heel of Esau as he came out. 
Now, fraternal twins have two amniotic sacs. Identical twins generally also have two. Identical twins can share an amniotic sac. <coughs> now, if Yaakov and Esav were not identical twins, how is it possible that Yaakov, Jacob, was holding on to the heel of Esav? Unless they were identical twins. Why? But, if they're, but how is he holding on to him? So you might have brought to the side. Right, it's very common. No, that's the question. I just want that question. That's, 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 that's the story. That's how Jacob and Esau were identical. They couldn't have been. Look at the Bible. One was red and hairy, and the other one was smooth and not. That's an interesting question that came across. No, so there's one one person, which I don't believe is a necessarily even a Torah scholar. I don't know if he's Jewish now. So he wanted, there's a thing called, which is clearly wrong, but it's just an interesting thought. He wanted to say there's a, th- there's a thing called, I don't know, is that true? Who, that, uh, someone tell me here who knows. It's the normal way when, when two twins are in two different sacks. One, when one of the sacks breaks, the first one that's born, the other one normally breaks like, at the same time before the other one's born that it would be possible to do such a thing? Or is that like... Do we have any OBs in the room? No, but that's true. You could have... I said practically. I don't know... Correct. Think, but do there, are there sacks normally ruptured at the same time that one can well, be... Will sacks be ruptured when the first one comes out, or is generally the second The second one not, one. right. There are cases where you have one, you deliver one twin or you deliver two months later, and you deliver two months later. Correct. Right, so I'm saying, is there is ever the opposite case? Is, you're, you're, say, you're answering the question by just saying... Simultaneously rupture? Is that what you're saying? I'm asking how probable was that? That, that no, I don't, that's, that's what I'm asking. I don't know. Before the first one delivers? Yeah, that both sex were But Well, I'm assuming by Jacob and Asaph it wasn't done medically. I think that's a safe assumption. I don't know. I think it wouldn't be rare for both the sex to rupture prior to delivery of the first one. I don't know. 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 I don't Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a cool question. I thought you don't see no captains. Go ahead. Whenever you want, whenever you want right, to go, go. Much. Thank you so much for coming. Pleasure thank having you. you. Thank you for hosting. So there's a concept called twin to twin um transfusions in here. Yes, I, I see that's what you're getting at. You're describing a solid body. Right, so that, that's that's that's